So hopefully that video is helpful for you guys. It, it's helpful for me as I try to, we're, we're studying through the minor prophets. I don't know how many of you guys have ever studied through the minor prophets before, but they're difficult, you know, and they're kind of tucked in the back of the Old Testament, and you start reading one, you're like, wait, 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 what are we talking about? Who, who's talking? Who is this king? It's a bunch of names, and you're just like, all right, I, I don't even know what we're doing, and they're way back at the end of the Old, I mean, like, think about Probably none of us have Nahum quotes on our walls, you know. They're, they're just, they're kind of an enigma for a lot of us. And so for a lot of us, we probably avoid them a little bit. So what I want to do, uh, this is going to be nerdy classroom, so we're going to be sharp uh, tonight. Because we really, to understand the minor prophets, we have to understand a little bit of how they fit into the history. Uh, and so I, we handed out timelines. If you guys didn't get a timeline and want one, Bo's got some in the back. You can just raise your hand if you didn't get one, but that's going to be helpful as we go through this. Anybody? All right. Bo's got one right back there. Okay, great. Cool. So it's, it's really crucially important when we're studying the minor prophets to look at the timeline. So let's put the timeline up on the board. I know for a fact ain't nobody in the room can read this timeline. You guys, it looks very black to me. Hey, there it is. Okay, so you have it in your hand, and some of the uh, senior members of our church have already complained that even the handout is a little small, so I apologize. We'll send it out. Uh, and so, uh, but this is one of the best timelines I've ever seen about the whole Old Testament. And so I just want to point out a couple of things within this timeline so we can understand the minor prophets and where they fit in better. So if you look at your hand out there, you can see as, as Israel goes along, I'm going to use a laser pointer here. Right here, the people cry out for a king. Y'all remember that point in Israel's history, that these guys cry out for a king and God grants that. And so Israel starts to have a king at this point in history and you have the United Kingdom and you have Saul and you have David and you have Solomon and then after that in history the kingdom is divided. Solomon's two sons, there's Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they have a big split and Israel, the ten tribes of the north, split off from Judah, the two tribes of the south. All right, y'all kind of getting the, the lay of the land here for the timeline? Okay, so you got the kings up here for the north, the kings down here for the south. They're color-coded on whether they were good or bad kings. Now, Israel, as they go along, they... Uh, but, Israel gets worse and worse and worse and worse morally. They fall further and further away from the Lord, and y'all know eventually, and we can see it in 2 Kings 17, that Israel gets, uh, gets captured by the nation of Assyria. Now, the Assyrians are brutal, brutal people. They would pile piles of skulls at their gates to intimidate their enemies. They're brutal people, and God's people, the, the ten tribes of the north, got carried away by Assyria. All right, so the southern kingdom, Judah does a little bit better in history, but they start spiraling further and further down, and y'all know eventually they're captured down to Babylon, all right? Y'all remember that when we studied through Daniel, we're talking about them being in captivity to Babylon. That's the southern kingdom there. All right, here's a piece of history I didn't know uh, a while back, and so it's really interesting because Babylon ends up conquering the Assyrians. And so some of those northern tribes, kind of a, a remnant of those northern tribes, end up rejoining the south, but it's like, well, Amos describes it like it's like a couple of legs being saved from the mouth of a lion. It's just barely saved, a few people are pulled down. And so then all of God's people are down here in Babylon. Well, then Babylon gets overtaken by the Persians. 
Now there's a huge turning point in the history of God's people where the king of Persia, his name is Cyrus, he makes this decree that all the Jews, they can go back home. They can go back to their land, they can rebuild the temple, they can worship their God, they can rebuild the walls, and that's where you have the story of Nehemiah. Is this, is this making sense? It's so helpful for me to see it on the same page. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 okay, I remember somebody went to the Assyrians, and somebody went to the Babylonians, and then how the heck they get back? Like, what's going on? That's kind of how it played out. Well, what's important to see when we're talking about the minor prophets, all these guys in the middle here, you see all that? That's all the prophets, it's, it's easy for us to get so confused by the minor prophets because they're stuck at the end of our Bible. We don't see them in the timeline. In fact, if you look at the way our English Bibles are structured, will you go to that next one? So everybody knows this. When you open your Bible, even the table of contents, you got the books of the law, the books of history, the books of wisdom, and the books of prophecy. So there they are all at the end there. When in the timeline, that's not really where they sat. So it's tempting to just look at the Bible and be like, oh, I guess... All the prophets lived at the end of the Old Testament? Like it, when the story was done, that's when they lived? Well, this isn't the way that the Hebrew Bible was structured as the video showed. And, and for me, it's really helpful to look at the structure of the Hebrew Bible. Now, it's structured this way because they did it with the, I'm not even gonna get into that. Uh, so the Hebrew Bible, uh, we go to the next one. The Hebrew Bible is very interesting, like the video said, because you have the books of the law and then it starts going into the prophets. And the former prophets, you remember the story uh, we just saw it in the video, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then the exile hits right there, all right? So that's when they fall into exile. So up until this point, the story has been progressing, all right? Can y'all see that? Story, 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 pause. They go into exile. So the story of the Bible pauses, and then you have the prophets. The history tells us what the prophets tell us why. So it pauses on the story to tell us, okay, y'all saw what just happened in history? Let's tell you why that happened. This happened because of this. They went to the Assyrians because of this. They went to Babylon because of this. They stopped to tell us why. Well, then we have these other books that are poetry and wisdom that the story's kind of still paused for the most part during that time to kind of make sense as wisdom contemplates. And then the story resumes with the latter prophets, and that's Daniel and Esther and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles, and the whole Hebrew Bible ends with them about to go back up into, into their land, where Cyrus, at the end of the thing, is who will go up, and it's kind of like dot, 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 like a, it leaves you hanging, like, are they going to go back up? So it's a really cool ending, because uh, Chronicles is kind of retelling the whole story, so you kind of get it all. It's, to me... It makes all the difference in the world for understanding all these books. Because y'all know, know what books the minor prophets are, right? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All these books that we so rarely read, it's so helpful for me to see, okay, the story pauses. These guys are telling us why all these things in history are happening. That's crucial for me. This is the why to the what. So just as an intro, because tonight's an intro sermon, I wanna just give a couple of introductory notes that hopefully will help you as we, as we kinda of travel along through the Minor Prophets. I, I wanna give just a couple of introductory notes and then we're actually gonna dip into the book of Amos for a minute, all right? So a uh, couple introductory notes. Think about the prophets themselves. What are the prophets? They're just messengers. They carry God's message, they preach to the people for God, they're like his ambassadors, and they pray for the people. Now you got prophets that are coming from all different walks of life, I mean, 
really various walks of life, and, and their messages are told in various ways. Some of them, uh, you know, it's visual messages that they have to act out. Some of them, it's written messages uh, that could be in the form of drama or object lessons, or their life could be the message. Y'all know we're going to study Jonah next, and that one is such a cool book that's very unique because Jonah speaks a message to the Assyrians, that brutal nation that carried off the north, but in reality, his life is the other message to us, the way he lives his disobedience. So I want to give just real quick but helpful guidelines here. So as these guys are speaking, there's different speech types that they use. When the prophets are speaking, and it's helpful to just kind of know what these are, kind of have a category as you're reading through a Nahum, for example, and you're like, what are we doing? Uh, this this kind of helps you kind of have some parameters. Uh, so the prophets usually, they use a, one or more of these kind of speech types. There's four of them. Indictment, instruction, warning slash punishment, or hope and salvation. Now it's pretty easy to know what those are. You can kind of tell by the titles. But indictment is, and this is one of the chief roles of the prophets, indictment is just confronting the people because they violated the covenant. All of the prophets are preaching with their Bibles open. They're preaching primarily with Deuteronomy open. They're preaching with the law open, those sections of blessings and curses. Their indictment is just an indictment. Here's where you're going wrong. Second speech type is instruction. This tells the people, here's how you need to change according to the law. The third one is warning and punishment. And again, there's a close tie between the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy and every single one of these minor prophets. Almost all of them, you can see, okay, he said, if you do this, you'd be blessed. If you don't do this, you'll be cursed. And the minor prophets walk through stuff like that. Leviticus, there's a curse. Uh, it won't be on the board, but it says, if you walk contrary to me, I will scatter you among the nations. And they walked contrary. And so the prophet's job is to say, you're going to be scattered. The Assyrians are going to take you. The Babylonians are going to take you. It'll happen like this. Specifics. The last uh, speech type is hope and salvation. Statements of hope and salvation unpack these restoration uh, blessings that God has promised. So just like he talks about the curses in Deuteronomy, he also talks about the blessings. You wouldn't think it if it just your knee-jerk reaction on thinking about the minor prophets as being filled with hope and Jesus, but they really, really are. They're filled with messages of hope and Christ, about people returning to the land, but it's kind of one of those, they, a lot of them have an immediate fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. Whether it's blessings or curses, they're preaching with their Bibles open. So it's important to kind of have in mind the different types of speech, what blessings or curses uh, the, the prophet's thinking about when he's preaching. These guys had their Bibles open. All right, last set of guidelines here for interpreting the prophecy. Uh, and there are five of these. As you're thinking about Old Testament prophecy, or specifically these minor prophets, one guideline that's going to help you is guard against interpretive fallacies. What's that mean? Uh, don't try to make the passage say something it doesn't. Don't try to link Old Testament prophecies with current times. People do this all the time and go way, way wrong. Oh, this is probably talking about this politician or this nation or this and this. I mean, it is just about impossible. And you gotta remember the primary purpose of the prophets is to help the people be loyal to the covenant. Pointing them back to Deuteronomy, that's the primary purpose, not telling the future, all right? So don't attempt to link it with current times. Don't over-spiritualize it. Don't take it out of context and make it say what you want it to. Don't over-personalize it. Think about what it meant to the original hearers. All right, the second guideline for interpreting the Old Testament prophecy is to think in terms of the oracles. 
Think in terms of those oracle speech types that we just said. Remember those types of speech and try to interpret these oracles in light of the law. The third one is, and this one's the most crucial to me, you gotta pay attention to history. So this is where I'm saying it helps to be a little bit nerdy. That's why I gave you those timelines. So as we go through each one of these and you're up against Joel or you're up against Amos, it helps to be like, all right, what's going on? Where, where are they hitting in this timeline? What's going on in history? Pay attention to history. All 15 of the Old Testament classical prophets preached during a 340-year period. During that period, these guys went from a divided kingdom to exile to all the way to just being a tiny remnant in Persia. And the why is disobedience brings curses. You've got to pay attention to history. The la- uh, number four, remember the covenants and the canon. All I'm saying here is you've got to be asking, how does this prophecy fit into the larger story of the Bible? The last one was, how does it fit into the larger story of history? This one is, how does it fit into the story of Bible? How is it advancing the story of the the scripture? You might ask, why are they grouped like they are? The the minor prophets are grouped and ordered like they are for more theological purposes rather than chronological. So you'll see one guy and you're like, wait, wait, wait. We're back in Assyria? Well, I thought we were out of that in the last story. Yeah, it's more theological than chronological on those. The last one is, See and savor Christ and the gospel. The New Testament is clear that the prophets are talking about Jesus. Y'all remember there's that passage in 1 Peter where it's like, and these prophets, they didn't even know what they were talking about, but you're getting the benefit from it. These guys were talking about Christ. Remember when Jesus is walking with those guys on the way to Emmaus, he opened up the scriptures and showed them every one of these prophets. He's pointing to me. Nahum, he's pointing to me. Jonah, he's pointing to me. And here's how. That had to be the most fascinating conversation in history. See and savor Christ and the gospel. Now, we look for Christ, but not in a superficial way, right? But you can see that Jesus and his, his work can be magnified from all of these uh, prophetic texts. So let me do this. Before we dive into Amos, I want to just give a quick flyby. Uh, we don't have anything on the board for this. I want to give a quick flyby for each one of the books if you'll just look at your timelines, all right? Just look at the history, and all I want to do is, is illustrate in this, see the history, these guys are writing, they're real people, writing to real people in real time, talking about real events. Now, they may have ultimate meanings too, but just look at the history, all right? Hosea. Hosea is a prophet to the north. It's helpful to know which, which group he's talking to, right? Hosea is a prophet to the north, and it happens before the Assyrian invasion. Hosea lives out his sermon. Y'all remember, he's the one that's called to marry a prostitute, and he is a walking analogy of God and Israel. And the whole book is just a plea for God's people to return. And the book ends with just a prediction that it's going to happen, at least for some of them. Joel is a prophet to the south. Now, he preaches about the Babylonians are coming. Please repent. And his message is beyond just you're going to be delivered right now. His message focuses on being saved eternally more than politically. Amos is a prophet to the north before the Assyrian invasion. It's a call to repent because in Amos, these guys are worshiping other gods. They're oppressing the poor. And they're thinking that wealth equals God's blessing. Obadiah is a weird one. Obadiah is not to the north or the south. It's to their neighbors. Obadiah is to the nation of Edom. Remember, they're kind of a brother to Israel. And Edom had done Judah wrong. When the Babylonians come in and invade, instead of helping out Israel, Edom's like, huh, 
free houses, let's go. And they just go and jump in on all their stuff. And so it's, a, it's an indictment against Edom. Jonah is a prophet to the north. Now, again, it's a different book. He's supposed to preach repentance, and he halfway does it. And then basically his life, his rebellious life, is the message. It's an object lesson that God cares about all people. Micah is a message to the south. It's three cycles of judgment, blessing, judgment, blessing, judgment, blessing. You may be scattered in the future, but it's not permanent because God's merciful. Nahum talks about the Assyrians and what's going to happen to those guys, and it's hope for the northern Israelites that Assyria will fall, which we know they do to the Babylonians. Habakkuk is written to the south. Now, Habakkuk lives in a time where the Assyrians, uh, I'm sorry, the Babylonians have destroyed the Assyrians, but they hadn't gotten down to, the, to, uh, to Judah yet, but they're going to. And so Habakkuk's like, man, Judah's so terrible. God, you need to do something about it. And God's like, oh, I'm, I'm fixing to. I've got the Assyrians coming, I'm sorry, the Babylonians coming, and they're going to invade. And Habakkuk's life is a lesson as he learns how to trust God in the dark times. Zephaniah is a prophet to the south. As he preaches, Assyria has already captured Israel, but Judah is still standing. And he preaches about the day of the Lord where God's going to judge sin, bring mercy, and make everything right. Haggai and Zechariah, they work together. And these guys preach after the return. After Cyrus made the decree and the people go back, but the temple hadn't been rebuilt yet. And so the people are concerned that or really, I'm sorry, Haggai and Zephaniah are con- Zechariah are concerned that the people aren't going to be walking with God in, back in their land. And so there's a theme that God's going to be with you, and there's an emphasis on the coming king. And then the last one is Malachi. Malachi is written after the people have returned, the temple has been reconstructed, but the people are arguing that they're still not as good as the other nations. And so they're half-heartedly worshiping God. They're not trusting God's plan, but they seem to be fed up. And the call is to be faithful now despite the weight God will restore. When you see these prophets, all 12 of these minor prophets, it's just laced with history. If you don't understand the history, you don't understand the prophets. And so that's why it's so helpful just as an intro that as we read this, we have timelines in mind. Who are these guys preaching to? Because there's a flow of thought to the minor prophets. If you think about it, all these guys are preaching about sin, and punishment and restoration. But there's a flow as you go through. If you read them all 12 at one time, good luck. It is very difficult. But like if you read them all 12 at one time, you can see the first six books really address sin. Then the next three books are more about punishment. Then the last three books are more about restoration. Now, it's hard to read all 12 of those at once. So what I want to do in our last few minutes is I just want to slow down and look at Amos. I just want to look at that. So you can turn your Bibles to the book of Amos. I just want to slow down and look at at Amos as just an example of kind of the messages the prophets would preach. It's a lot of like, a lot of like guidelines for interpreting, a lot of oracle speech types, a lot of nerdy stuff, but it's really helpful to have a handle on that stuff as you go into one book. So I just want to do a very, very quick dive into this, into the book of Amos. Amos is very, very structured. There's a three-part structure to the book. And basically, the book moves geographically like a bullseye. He targets nations, 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 till he gets to his real target, which is Israel. So the book of Amos is written to the north, to Israel. And this is pre-Assyria, okay? So let's look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who is among the shepherds of Tekoa, 
which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquakes. All right, pause for a second. Is it helpful to have gone through the timeline a little bit so you know, okay, wait, wait, okay. So Amos is talking to Israel, and this guy was king up here, and this guy was king down here. It's super helpful to me to know what's going on. Now, Here's the oracles, and it's funny how he does it. And I'm just going to, we're going to go through this lightning fast, all right? But when Amos gives these oracles, it's almost like he's walking in artillery shells to the main target. Put up a map here that you won't be able to see, all right? So we'll send it to you later. Apologize. Uh, But so Judah, Judah's right here, right? This is the southern kingdom. That's where Amos lives. He lives 12 miles south of Jerusalem in a little town called Tekoa. He's just a shepherd, right? Not a priest, not anything. So he lives right down here below Jerusalem, right about here, right by Bethlehem, right? 12 miles below Jerusalem. And so he's preaching to Israel all right here. And so first he gives these warnings, and it's like these warning shots where his first shot is for Damascus, which is like about right here. I guess way, way off the map. He says, woe to you guys up here in Damascus. The second one he gives is, woe to you guys over here in Gaza. The third one he gives is, woe to you guys up here in Tyre. So he's kind of like making an X over his main target here. And he's like, woe to you guys down here in Edom. Then in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, woe to you guys here in Ammon. Then he says, woe to you guys in Moab. He's getting closer to his main target. Woe to you guys in Judah. And then his main target he settles in in chapter 2 to woe to Israel, the main target. They're going to be the subject for the rest of the book. He kind of hones in, bap, 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 bap. And there's a, I mean, that book's so fascinating. There's a pattern to every one of these woes. He says, for three offenses, or three transgressions, and for four. It's It's kind of a completion. And in every one of them, fire is mentioned. What's God's main issue with Israel at this point? What's God's message from Amos? Well, the issue with Israel is, during this point, you got the divided kingdom, right? At this point in history, Israel, the northern, they're doing great. They, they got money. They got food. They got wealth. They've got comfort. They're doing great. And so they confuse that for God's blessing. They think, God's on our team. This is awesome. And so they get sloppy. They start worshiping other gods. And one reason they're wealthy is because they're oppressing the poor. That's a huge theme in the book of Amos is they're oppressing the needy, oppressing the poor. You can see this in Amos chapter 2. And it's crazy because these guys think it's like the golden age of Israel when in reality it's like the last gasps. You know, they're about to be taken away. Amos 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Now he goes into the idolatry. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of God, they drink the wine of those who've been fined. So you can see the indictment. They're worshiping other gods openly and they're mistreating and pushing down the poor. I think chapter three, verse two is like the central verse in Amos. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's shown such grace to the Israelites, and they're just rebelling against their father. Remember, the history books tell us what. The prophets tell us why. Why is this punishment happening? Well, you're oppressing the poor. You're sleeping with temple prostitutes. 
Now, in chapter three, God has that crazy line where he's, he says basically, a trap doesn't spring unless something steps in it. Disaster doesn't come to a city unless the Lord does it. He says, I, if you want somebody to look at, I'm behind this, and it's because of what you're doing. Now, he's gonna tell Amos to tell the people about the disaster that's fixing to happen. Amos 3. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary, pause, who's that? Assyria. An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you. Your strongholds will be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who lived in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. He's saying an adversary is going to surround you and overtake you. Now there will be a remnant to save, but the, the language is graphic. It's like they've been lounging on their beds, and what's going to survive is just a piece of what was. Amos 4. He says this, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. What an insult. And he's insulting the ladies here. Look what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you. Listen to this. When they'll take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you'll go out through the breaches, everyone straight ahead, and you'll be cast out into Harmon. He's very specific about where they're headed. Now, the hooks was an ancient Assyrian practice. Will you go to that next one? Where they would, and you can't really see this that good, but this is like, um, like a, an old inscription on this pillar, and it shows the Assyrians where they would, they would hook people through, they say the lower jaw. Some pictures show it through the lips, some people show it through the jaw, but they hook people and lead them away, and they displace these people all over the place. And the Lord is saying, that's fixing to happen. And here is why. It is very, very specific. Now, it's pretty brutal, but God has given these guys so many opportunities to repent. In chapter four, he describes, I've reached out to you over and over. And he, he tells, I've reached out with this plague. I've reached out with no food. I've reached out with this. I've reached out with prophets. And basically five times he says, but you didn't return to me but you didn't return to me, you didn't return to me, you didn't return to me, you didn't return to me after all that I've done. Then in chapter five, he goes on and says, but there's still hope even after all those times you didn't return. Three times he says, seek me and you'll live. Seek me and you'll live. Seek me and you'll live. Man, as you read the minor prophets over and over and over, even though temporary punishment might be inevitable, there's always hope if they turn to the Lord. Chapter five of Amos shows they don't. They basically, they keep on sacrificing to God that they barely know, but they mix these sacrifices with other gods like Sikath, this God king, and Kian, this star god. And so he says in chapter five, verse 27, he says this, I'm gonna send you into exile beyond Damascus. Remember that Damascus was that point off the board? That's where Assyria is, way up there. I'm gonna send you into exile beyond Damascus. It's exactly what happened. Look at the history, all right? We've heard the prophet, the history, 2 Kings, we'll have it on the board, chapter 18. This happens in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, the king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria, that's the north, and besieged it. At the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. 
the king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halath and on the Habor, the river of Gozon, and the cities of the Medes because they didn't obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. It happened just like the prophet said. Now, as Amos comes to a close, it really, it's dark, but then if you look, it's subtle, but there's so much hope built in. Look at chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Listen, this is, this is the dark part here. There's only nine chapters in Amos. We're in chapter 8. It says, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning. I will make it like morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. That is bleak, but think about it. Even in this bleak time, Amos is turning on the light a little bit. Think about the imagery that he's using here. Where else do you see this specific picture of judgment? Darkness, mourning for an only son, bitterness, Exodus. You see in the Passover, there's darkness, there's mourning for an only son, there's bitterness. You see it in the, the, the night of the original Passover where the lamb dies. Amos wants the reader to see a light break through. Oh gosh, in that story, the people outside are judged, but there were some people that were spared. The people of God were spared. This is the beginning of the hope for, for Amos. Oh, return to the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, and you'll be spared. The message is become the people of God and be spared. Now, maybe not from the Assyrian captivity, but their souls. It's beautiful hope for Israel, but if you think even further, for us, we're New Testament folks. Look, we have the benefit of seeing all that play out already, but we're also able to see hints of our future hope because we have the benefit of seeing the prophets through the lens of Jesus, through New Testament lenses, because we're looking back at the Passover and we see, oh yeah, that dark Passover where the people, the angel of death passed over. But if we fast forward past Amos, we can see the hope really, we can see the Passover of Jesus. Where on that day the sun went black and there was mourning for an only son. But on that day, the judgment and the curses fall on Jesus, not on us. That's beautiful. We become the people of God and we're spared. I mean, all of the prophets have hope and hints of future hope that for us as New Testament saints, we can look back and be like, oh gosh, we are the people of God. All those curses from Deuteronomy fell on Jesus and he was punished so I get all the blessings from Deuteronomy. It's, it's beautiful. All of the prophets hint at Christ. Some of them speak explicitly about this king that's coming. But you can see him all throughout. Now, you can't like where's Waldo and be like, all right, where's Jesus in this story? But like you can see the story is building to Jesus, even in Amos. Last chapter, chapter 9. He ends with more hope. Listen to this. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day... Okay, pause for a second. Uh, this here isn't Amos talking. And at this part of the story, the Lord himself comes down and grabs the horns of the altar and he's, he's speaking, all right? And that day, I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord that, that, who does this. 
Now he goes on and talks about how they'll plant vineyards and they'll drink their wine and they'll have their gardens. They're going to come again to the land. But think about what he just said in chapter 9. The heck's he talking about? In that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old. What, what, what is he talking about? The Lord's got the horns of the altar and he says, I'm going to raise up the booth of David? Well, some, some commentators would say the booth's like the tabernacle. Some would say, no, he's talking about the temple. He's going to rebuild the temple. And some would say, no, he's talking about the house of David. I think he's just alluding to Christ. In that day, it's supposed to give us hints of everything. It's the tabernacle, it's the temple, it's the house of David. It's this mysterious and hopeful section where he's saying, one day the house of David's going to rise again. One day the temple's going to rise again. One day the tabernacle's going to rise again. And I think that that is why the gospel writers are so careful to make those links for us. The very first words, the very first thing Matthew tells us about Jesus is son of David. He's the son of David because he wants to link to this promise and others like it. The, in the first paragraph, John tells us Christ tabernacled among us. And Jesus himself said, I'm the temple that's going to raise again. The minor prophets are crucial to our understanding of Jesus even. I think we see a, so much hope at the end of Amos for this people and for us on the far horizon out there. And it's beautiful. It's subtle. But it's beautiful. Last thing. I'm going to give you just three things on the minor prophets real quick. As we read these minor prophets, as you see these pictures of Christ, this punishment on sin, I'll give you three things real quick that we should see. Number one, we should see the law as a reflection of God's character. That's the backdrop for us understanding the whole, uh, the whole minor prophets. Number two, we should internalize the messages about how God feels against sin. You know, it's easy to read one of these and be like, oh, that's a warning to Ephraim. I'm in the clear, you know. Uh, we should be warned about the attitudes behind these actions. Yeah, we've not crushed a nation to the ground, but there's attitudes of injustice or idolatry in ourselves. We should be warned against God's judgment. And the third one is just we should be encouraged in the hope in the minor prophets because every single one of these is laced with hope. There is mercy for sinners, even in the Old Testament. That's why they got the sacrificial system. There's mercy for us. God's message of judgment is evangelistic. And for us, man, we got hope realized. He's the lamb who is slain in darkness. He's the temple who raised again. He's our future hope. Judgment for sin, mercy for sinners, restoration for God's people. That's the message for all the prophets. And I think Calvary is the ultimate prophetic message. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for um, the minor prophets. So confusing um, for us that weren't born into this culture of these time periods Lord but I pray that even as we study these books I pray that we would see what you want us to see I pray that we would I pray we'd see you in these not superficially but that we'd really see restoration for your people I pray that we'd see the king that's coming and, and that we would see that the king has come and we look forward to the future hope that's still promised that's out there Lord God I pray that this study would be rich for us as a church Lord that you would warn us against sin, that you'd cause us to hope in you, that we would receive the blessings because you received the curse. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.